Let's pray with me one more time real quick just before we open God's word. And uh, Father, we simply ask that you would open our eyes that we could see the wonderful, the glorious things that are in your word. In order to understand and live out uh, this, we need the Holy Spirit's work uh, to illumine our hearts and minds. So graciously give that this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Deuteronomy 2 uh, again this, this evening, continuing on in, in Deuteronomy. Uh, but I actually want to start referencing a, a verse from, from Hebrews. It's a, a command that I think this, this is going to work kind of a, a banner over uh, tonight's passage in, in Deuteronomy 2. And that, that verse from Hebrews is Hebrews 13.5, where we get this command. It's way towards the end of the, the book of Hebrews. He's given out these kind of rapid-fire commands, and he says... Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So essentially, don't love money, don't worship money, be content with what you have. And this is, I think, a a command, something that many of us uh, personally want, or at least at times want. Uh, This is a a command that we want others to obey, probably want to teach our kids or other people uh, this lesson, right? Hey, don't, don't. Don't be caught up in the love of money. Be content with what you have. Now, I want you to think, though, when you, just for example, are trying to get uh, your, your kids or just somebody else to, uh, to obey this command, how do you normally try to inspire it? Uh, like, what would you normally do? What argument would you make to someone if you said, hey, you be content with what you have? When I, I think about that, um, I, I, I usually have two uh, methods. I kind of have two ways I attack this. One is, I, again, tell my kids, hey, be content with the toys you have, for example. Others have it worse, right? Uh, there's some kids who don't have the great toys you have, right? That's one, one way I might go. The other one is to just say, hey, you should really enjoy all the things you have. You have great toys, don't you remember that thing you were really excited about that you got for Christmas or whatever, right? Those are the two avenues I usually go. So don't you know, there's kids who have it way worse. Hey, look around, what you've got is good. And those are good ways to kind of inspire it. But how does, how does Hebrews try to inspire contentment? Is it a little bit different, uh, you know, uh, is it a little bit different strategy than what I just use with my kids? Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What's the Hebrew strategy for inspiring contentment? Know God, know his goodness, know his promises. Contentment, Hebrews seems to say, flows out of trust in the goodness of God. Think about how well this argument would how well this argument would work. Or not work if uh, the one who said, right, the he who said this, I will never leave you or forsake you, um, just means not very, is not very meaningful to you, right? If the God who said that in your mind is not particularly good, not particularly exciting one to have near you, not particularly strong or trustworthy, right, will it inspire you to much contentment if when you hear, I will never leave you or forsake you, the one who's saying that, in your mind is 
not a very big deal. But how does that work if you know the greatness and the goodness of the one who's saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you? If you know some of the things we just sang in those opening hymns about his glory and his goodness, and suddenly, like, the I will never leave you or forsake you is like, whoa, this matters, right? It's not just some random person, some random mortal, some dust-to-dust person who's saying, I'll never leave you or forsake you, right? Suddenly, God himself is saying, I will never leave you or forsake you, so you can be content with what you have, right? If you know the greatness and the goodness of the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you, then you're changed. I mean, you, you have this, this, this superpower of contentment. That's what Paul kind of calls it in Philippians 4, where he's like, I've learned in whatever situation to be content. Uh, Hebrews 13.5, I've learned how to obey that. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think we've said, Paul, why, how is that? Why is that? He's like, because I know Jesus. I know the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he is very good. And I think uh, as we walk through Deuteronomy chapter 2, what's happening tonight is, is we're, we're trying to have this I, the I who's speaking here, expanded. We have a weak, shrivelly view of God and the one who's, who's saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. Contentment is just not going to happen, right? We're going to be chasing after all, of, all these other things. But as we go through Deuteronomy 2, and so much other scripture, right? our understanding of the one who's saying, I will never leave you or forsake you, will get strength and it will be strong, it will be sturdy, have deep roots, and therefore will have this power to obey. Hebrews 13.5 will have that power of contentment that Paul has. Um, so let's dig in. Let's dig into Deuteronomy chapter 2. We're just going to be going through verse 23 this evening. And you know, it's a little bit of review. You remember that uh, Deuteronomy is, is really largely a sermon or a set of sermons, uh, all, all preached by Moses to Israel shortly before his death, and really not long before the, the conquest of the, the land that was promised. So that's everything that happens in Joshua. Um, and I think it's meant to be a motivational sermon. Uh, urging Israel's faithful obedience to the covenant law of Sinai. And those were given 40 years ago. So it's good to kind of keep in mind where we are. Back in uh, chapter, yeah, chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that this is happening essentially in the 40th year of the Exodus. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him and commandment to them. So this is happening way on the kind of, if you had like this 40-year timeline, Moses is giving the speech way over here in year 40. But what we've heard so far, if we're looking at uh, uh, chapter 1, is mainly this historical review that chapter 1 is all, a lot of it's taking place over here uh, in those first two years. Um, But as we'll see, within a matter of a verse, we jump essentially from year 2 to year 38. (laughs) So, this first speech of Moses, we've reviewed this a little bit, and these first four chapters, uh, his, his first speech here, it's a historical review, but it's a very condensed historical review. If you want more details, you've got to go back to Exodus. You've got to go back to Numbers. 
the very condensed and selective retelling of these years. Where, where chapter 1 is really just the, the first two years after the exodus from Egypt. And, and the focus was really actually not just on everything that happened during those two years, but the failure, the failed first attempt to enter the promised land. Now, you remember, we reviewed these past two weeks, where they, were, they, they come up to essentially the south border of the promised land, to Kadesh, and God's like, hey, there's some people up there, but don't be afraid of them. We go back actually to, to verse 29 of chapter 1. He says, uh, I said, you do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. So what was supposed to happen there in year two uh, was God said, hey, go in. There is going to be some conquering involved. They may seem intimidating, uh, but God will be with them, right? So was God giving them a good and bountiful land? Yes, you bet. But were the current inhabitants currently more imposing than the Israelites? Yes, you bet. But should that second fact have stopped them? What does verse 29 through 31 here say? No, that shouldn't have stopped them. The Lord is going to fight for them just like he did in Egypt, just as they wandered in all those years after Egypt. So unfortunately, as we saw here in the history, this is kind of the breaking point. They did not trust in the Lord with all their heart. They instead leaned on their own understanding and as the it's put here in verse 32 in spite of this word God's promise to them they did not believe the Lord their God and so that is what resulted is in the 40 year ordeal in the wilderness the years of wandering that judgment came upon that generation that did not believe that word and so God was going to have them wander, led by Moses, until that generation had died off. This is what was said. The judgment came down, we saw last week in verse 34, where the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Right? And he makes exceptions for Caleb and Joshua because of their faithfulness. But the judgment came down. And so chapter 1 goes into chapter 2 with that judgment coming. Essentially the exodus that they'd been on so far out of Egypt up to that way to the north has been put in reverse. There's now been a bit of an anti-exodus going on, right? We read this in verse 1 of chapter 2. We turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. If you're thinking, that's where they came from? That sounds like where they came from. Is that right? Yeah, that's where they came from. God was sending them back along the route of the Exodus. And for many days, 38 years, they traveled around Mount Seir. So that was the condensed retelling that jumps us from year 2 to year 40, essentially, of the Exodus. But now we're, we're here. We're towards the end and finally, the flow gets to change one more time. They've been sent south back towards the Red Sea, but now we get into chapter 2, verse 
2 and 3, and the Lord says to, said to me, the Lord said to Moses, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. And I suppose they all went, yes, that is true. Indeed we have. And then these great words may seem simple to us, but are incredibly just gracious new command for them. Turn northward. Right? The Exodus reversal is beginning. And so what we're about to embark on both this week and next week is Israel, as they wander, has five different encounters uh, on their march up to the Jordan where they'll cross over into the, into the Promised Land. They have five different encounters in that region as they march north uh, with different nations or people or, or, or kings. And we're just going to look at the first three of those uh, this evening. Next week, Pastor Don, Lord willing, will be back and leading you uh, to unpack those battles. But here... Um, we just get the first three, and these are all lessons for Israel. Each of these encounters is really meant to be an instructive lesson. God is kind of taking them to school on this journey, and they're meant to be lessons on, on the sufficiency of taking only what God gives, right? Because Israel, as they pass through these places, will be, we'll see this in a moment, is instructed to only take what God gives and nothing more. Be content with what you have. Be content with what God is giving you is essentially his word to them. So we'll see this here. Um, again, as we see their first encounter of the three we'll look at here begins in chapter 2, verse 4. We're told, uh, You are about to pass through the territory of your brother." the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. So these first people are the the people of Esau. We've studied back in Genesis. We know the family tree and the history here. This is, uh, later this will get referred to as Edom. So this is, you can kind of see, I I, I put up a map here. I don't know how well you can see that. I didn't test it. Oh yeah, you can see that. Uh, You can see if you're coming from the south, uh, you're going to come up, and Edom's going to be the first of these, these nations you'd encounter. They're in, in the green. That's the people of Esau. And so Moses' instruction, though, to them was, as you come, uh, you're going to pass through their territory, the people of Esau, they will be afraid of you. Now, if you stop and think about this, uh, Israel is not a small little band. Right. They are a nation that God has preserved in incredible prosperity through the wilderness wanderings. And so you think, there is a, from, from the Edomite perspective, there is now a horde of people coming up from the south. How do you think they're going to feel? But God is absolutely right. They will be afraid of you. How does that normally go? I mean, this is, this is a big part of world history. Nations and peoples moving and immigrating and uh, having conflict. Uh, a large nation of immigrants is going to cross into this other nation. Do you think they're going to be welcomed with open arms? Or will both nations' instinct be to kind of keep their hands on their holsters, so to speak, right? Ready? to kind of fight at the first sign of trouble. I mean, this seems like this is going to be a a powder keg situation, and God knows it. So that's why he gives those instructions. 
be very careful. Think of Romans 12:18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Right? Israel, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with the Edomites as you pass through. He goes on to tell them, right? I, I, do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as the sole of the foot to tread on. Why is that? Because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. He goes on, right? You're careful. The way you're going to be careful is you're not going to contend with them. And you're going to purchase food from them. How are you going to get food? You're going to purchase it from them. Very honestly and straightforwardly with money that you may eat. You shall obey water from them with money that you may drink. This is all going to be above board. You are not going to bully them. You are going to be a guest in their house as you pass through. That is how you are going to treat them. And again, he told them why. This is why you're going to act as guests in their house. This is why you're going to live peaceably with them as far as it depends on you. Because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. I have not given it to you, Israel. I have given it to them. So the law, that, that commandment they'd received, you know, the, the Ten Commandments, and when he was told, you know, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Yeah, that, that applies in this situation. Israel, there are things that don't belong to you, and, and more than simply not stealing them, you ought not to even covet them. And as you pass through, that applies to you. So in a sense, this is a test again. We've already had, you know, if we go back way early in the Pentateuch in Genesis, we had that, that test that Adam and Eve had. Right? I, I kind of warned you last week to look out for the echoes of those first three chapters of Genesis and the rest of this story because they come up and we have, we have a test similar to what they had. You remember the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not given to them. It was not given to Adam and Eve. And Israel's restraint in not taking from Eden was also a test, much like that, to are you going to be content with the goodness of what God's giving you? Right? Moses makes it clear that that's what's at stake here. Do you understand my goodness? Do you understand and trust the goodness of what I'm giving you? I've proven it so so far. So that's what he says in in verse 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So you don't need to covet your neighbor's house or wife or land or anything else. So the question for them is how big and good and trustworthy and Abel is the one who's making this promise to you. Right? That's our question uh, as we considered Hebrews 13.5 earlier. Right? How good, how trustworthy, how able is the one making promises to you? And so Israel, as they head north, this generation at least initially is passing the test. 
Um, there's a much longer version that gets told in Numbers, a more complicated version, but Moses just says it somewhat simply. We went on our way, away from our brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road from Elath and Ezion Geber. Right? They continued on. They made it through. And so that brings us to the second encounter with Moab, with the people of Lot, where we read in, uh, in verse 8 and 9. We turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle. Right? Same instructions they get as they move into the second place. So you've moved from Edom, now you're moving up to Moab. Same instructions, and you know what? Same reason. Right? Because I didn't give it to you. No, I will not give you any of their land for a possession. I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. Right? This land is not given to you. It's given to them for the same reason. You know, and we can, we're going to go a little bit out of order here. We're going to jump ahead to the third encounter that happens in, in verse 18. This is with the Ammonites. And as you'll see, it goes the same way. Today you're across the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, what do you think his instructions are going to be? Any guesses? Do not harass them or contend with them. Well, well maybe, maybe there's a little twist in the reason he gives. Let's find out. No, okay. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession because I've given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Right? Edom. Not yours. I've, I've given it to them, the Lord says. Moab, not yours. I've given it to them, the Lord says. Ammon, not yours. I've given it to them, the Lord says. Right? The theology being expressed here is really what's, what's celebrated in, in Deuteronomy 39. So at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, we've got a while before we get there, so I feel like I can allude to it and not kind of steal anything from when we actually get there. Uh, but Deuteronomy 32 Verses 8 and 9 is part of the Song of Moses. And this is what the Song of Moses says. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. What's he saying here? God is not just the God of Israel. Yes, they, have a, they are a special possession and have a special purpose. But God, Yahweh, the Lord, the Most High, every single nation, every single migration, every single border, He is the one who's established these. The Edomites are in their place at this time because the Lord gave that place to them as a possession. And, and when the time comes to judge them, if we're fast-forwarding a little bit, the Lord has every right to do so. And the Moabites are in their place at this time because the Lord gave them that place at that time as a possession. And again, to fast-forward a little bit, when the time comes to judge them, the Lord has every right to do so. And the same goes for the Ammonites. And really for us, as, as Christians, we should learn that th this is actually a foundational motivation for missions. This is one of the foundational ways the Bible motivates us for global missions is the fact that when we look at Indonesia and we learn that it, is the, it has more Muslims in that country than any other country, we still go, oh, but that's God's. That's the Lord's. 
Christ is king over that place. We need to proclaim that gospel, proclaim his kingship to that place, because it's his too. They may not recognize it, but it's his too. They must know him and serve him and receive from him. And Moses goes on, though. He, He makes this point that God has given these specific places to these specific people even more pointedly for the Israelites with with some of these parenthetical background info info references you've seen so far. So go go back a bit to to verse 10. We've, We've skipped around a little bit. Hopefully that hasn't lost you too much. But if you were reading this straight through, I suspect you'd get to a place like verses 10 through 12 or 20 through 23, and you'd kind of glaze over or speed read, and you'd say, this can't be important. I don't know these names. I don't know what's going on here. Um, And you'd miss out. Because a key part of Moses' argument, the way he's trying to convince the Israelites and us of the goodness and the ability of God is through these little side background comments. Because here in verse 10, let me just read it, and then I'll explain what's going on. So in verse 10 it says, The Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and tall as Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Amim. And going on to verse 12, The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Okay, what's going on here? And you realize Moses is helping us unpack God's statement when he says, I gave, I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. You're like, if you were thinking, man, I'd like a little bit more backstory on that. Could you go into a little bit more detail on that of, of God giving the people of Lot uh, this place as a possession? If, if that was your thought, you're in luck because that's what he's doing here. He says, uh, you know, uh, those Moabites, they didn't always live there. Uh, they haven't lived there in time immemorial. You know who used to live there? The Amim. And you, you go, well, okay. But when the Moabites came, they probably could have just trampled over the Amim. The Amim were probably weak and could have gotten just brushed aside. And the Moabites said, here, this is ours now. No, that's not how it worked. The Amim formerly lived there. They were a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Anakim known for being tall and clarifies some things about uh, how they're referred. Like the Anakim, they're also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them a meme. So in other words, the former residents of Moab were just as intimidating, make this connection, just as intimidating as the people in the promised land. The people that turned the Israelites into scaredy cats, uh, that's the same type of people that the Moabites faced. Um, But was that any challenge for the Lord to give that to them as a possession? No. The Israelites should be learning something here. And he goes on. He's like, that's not the only background story I want to give you. Maybe we go back to Mount Seir, to, to Edom, to that area given to the people of Esau. Did they always live there? Time immemorial? That's just as far back as you go. You're just going to find Edomite archaeological digs. 
Moses is like, nope, nope, no. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly. Uh, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possessions which the Lord gave to them. So they faced a hard enemy, an intimidating enemy, but the Lord is able to deliver them. Again, Israel's meant to be learning a lesson here. Your fear of the people in the promised land was unfounded. If we skip ahead, Moses gives another kind of side comment, background information. He's not done giving us these these backstories to these migrations. Jump ahead to verse 20, and we're talking about Ammon now. So this is the third encounter. And guess what? The Ammonites haven't lived there for time immemorial. Right? It is also counted as a land of the Rephaim. The Rephaim, intimidating people, formerly lived there. But the Amorites call them Zamzamim, right? So we're just keeping straight who we're talking about. But the Rephaim, they were a people, great and many and tall as the Anakim. But guess what? The Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites and dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them. And they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. So we have here three different groups of people who do not recognize Yahweh as Lord, who do not worship him rightly, yet God's power is able to be exercised for them on their behalf. And what's crazy, you can tell Moses really wants to make this point of God is able to provide the land for his people uh, he, he makes this point even more because he, he throws in just one more seemingly extra background piece of information in verse 23. He's like, as for the Abavim, you're like, no, who was talking about the Abavim? We didn't pass through the Abavim. Wait, where did the Abavim come up? He's like, no, I, I want to tell you about them. As for the Abavim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftar, destroyed them and settled in their place. So the Kaftarim, you're going, who is that? It's actually... Uh, the Philistines. So if you remember our map from earlier, we were talking about all these people who are kind of the, the, the Edomites, Moabites, Amorites, all these people kind of on the east edge of the Jordan heading up that way. But even the Philistines, who have nothing to do with this journey but are going to play a big part in Israel's story later on, even them down there by the coast, they had to face the Avim. But it was God who delivered them, who gave them that place. The lesson that's just getting drilled in here, each one of these lessons is kind of one turn of the screw, is God is capable of providing good. Even against giants. He does it even for those who don't yet worship him. What could possibly be in store for his people, for his portion? That's what they're meant to hear. That's what we're meant to hear. The God who's capable of giving good. So as they pass through these places, they're learning God can give good, and he's not giving this. So as long as you trust his goodness, you can be content with what you have. You cannot covet your neighbor's land. What he will give is better. Now, this passage does 
uh, also tell us about something else that happened, right? Right in between the second and the third encounter, so between the Moabites and the Ammonites, uh, there's a big shift that happens. We learn in verse 14 that from the, the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years. What happened in that time? Well, until the entire generation, that is the men of war, those who wouldn't go up into the land earlier, but refused when the Lord said to go, when they had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. That judgment that was promised for us just a chapter before, but for them decades earlier, that judgment that was promised came. And so now there's just a question of faithfulness and trust in the goodness of God that's in front of, I guess, what we might call the, the new generation. And it's what's in front of for us. And this question of, in your wandering to the promised land, will you continue to trust God's goodness or will you grab at something else? You know, it's uh, the, the New Testament, is going back to the book of Hebrews actually, sees us being in that same situation where we've been warned by the judgment of the generation before who did not make it through the wilderness. And so the question is, are we going to be like them or will we persevere in our trust of God? Right, Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, this is actually a quotation of Psalm 95. So it's kind of a little scripture building on scripture here. But the writer of Hebrews uh, says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hey, has that ever happened before? Uh, yes, it has. As in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known in my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. That's exactly what happened here in our passage in Deuteronomy 2. The 38 years passed. That generation did not enter his rest. And so the question for us and for them was, okay, today if you hear his voice, will you harden your heart like them or not? And so Hebrews actually goes on and applies this passage. He goes, okay, we're on this today. That today is our today. That question is our question. So, oh, take Care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving unbelieving heart leading you to fall astray from the living God. Exhort one another. This is our application. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, as we're in this moment of decision, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our job as brothers and sisters in Christ is to spur each other on to faithfulness. 
and to spur each other on to contentment, to satisfaction in Christ. It's to spur each other on to, to even thankfulness. I mean, do you understand how deep of a spiritual battle goes on through thankfulness? How, how strong of a spiritual fight you could be or should be putting up when you say grace before a meal. I know saying a prayer before a meal often feels like one of the most rote and routine parts of our Christian life. Just, oh, okay, I'd feel bad if I don't say it. Okay, got to bless the food, whatever. But think about what's happening, right? You're recognizing the goodness of God. You're literally tasting it. And that's most to connect you, not just like, oh, I'm glad I have this, the thing itself, but meant to connect you to a deeper understanding of the giver of that gift, which should spur you on to obedience to his commands, to his firmer and deeper trust in his promises, right? Through Israel, through their wilderness wandering, us through our day-to-day life, meant to see the goodness of God, process it through thankfulness, not just kind of a generic attitude of thankfulness, but real spiritual battle thankfulness that fuels us for faithfulness, for contentment, to not be led, led you know, one way or the other by, say, for example, the love of money, which Hebrews warns against. I think I can close how this, this works out with maybe one closing analogy. Yep, that's what I got time for. Closing analogy. Um, where it's the importance of knowing and recognizing the goodness of God in order to hold on to his promises. So I want you to imagine you're on a road trip, right? Um, your stomach begins to growl. So you're hungry. At that point, it's probably very tempting to stop at a gas station, maybe a quick trip. They seem to have everything. Uh, as we were driving a week ago, I stopped at a quick trip. They had spaghetti and meatballs I could have bought there. I mean, they have everything at some of these gas stations. You could just stop, right? Just get, I'm sure it wasn't the world's greatest spaghetti and meatballs, but you could have gotten spaghetti and meatballs at that quick trip. Uh, maybe your, your, your snack of choice is Twizzlers or Combos. Getting a coffee or a Mountain Dew. I don't know. Again, pick your poison. Um, we can stop and get, you know, just a little, little something. Twizzlers, Twinkies, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, often we may think that's no big deal. It's, it's not, you know, in and of itself. But again, this is an analogy. So think at the end, though, of this trip, you're not just showing up anywhere. You are showing up to your favorite home-cooked meal. Or I picture myself on this road trip to my grandma's house, and she is making my favorite meal on the planet, pork, dumplings, and sauerkraut. That's what we used to have every Christmas Eve. It's still all time. I haven't had it in decades, but it's my favorite meal. These kind of, her, like, Croatian handmade, you don't, no one knows the recipe because it's all up here, uh, dumplings. Just, I was looking at pictures of them in preparation for this analogy. It was making my mouth water, right? But you're on your way to this meal. How does that change your temptation to indulge in the Twinkie or the Twizzlers? If you know you've got this great meal ahead of you, the Twinkie or the Twizzlers aren't just not a temptation, they spoil it. 
You, you want to show up as hungry as possible. You're not going to get pulled to the left or the right with combos or Twinkies or Twizzlers or anything like that. You will, in fact, if you really have this hope and desire and trust that that meal is going to be there and it's going to be as good as you're hoping it is, you want your hunger as big as possible upon arrival. And I think this is how our understanding of the goodness of God, our understanding of the hope of the gospel, reinforces our holiness and contentment. You've tasted God's goodness. You want more. And so contentment allows you to reject all the ultimately unsatisfying fillers on offer. You know that what he has promised, whether it was what he gives for your daily portion, your daily bread in this life, or the glorious inheritance for the saints that lays ahead, right? no worldly thing is worth giving up in exchange. That's how this works. He, uh, Deuteronomy as a whole, and even just this evening, chapter 2, is meant us meant to help us see how trustworthy how good how reliable the one giving us our daily bread and our glorious inheritance ultimately is so let's pray and then we'll finish with our closing hymn heavenly father thank you for your word that instructs us and guides us that helps us uh, is our, our our way of knowing you we know you, we know your goodness, your glory, how satisfying you are, how trustworthy you are because of your word, because of the testimony of those who've come before. But we also know it in our own lives. Thank you for the work of a spirit who uh, doesn't make this just a dead letter or uh, interesting stories, but genuine, um, just uh, imprints them on our hearts. So please work this way that we would have faith and trust this week, honoring you. In Jesus' name, amen.